Welcome to the History Today podcast for July 5th, 2012. In this episode, Nigel Jones discusses his book, Tower, an epic history of the Tower of London. And Anthony Horniold recalls his time spent as a British diplomat living through the Iraq Revolution of 1958. Nigel Jones is the author of Tower, an epic history of the Tower of London, which has just been released in paperback and is the History Today book choice for July. Here, he discusses his work with History Today editor, Paul Lay. Now, one of the really surprising things about this book, Nigel, is that there aren't that many of them. And in fact, we have this terrible word, but iconic building, this one that's one of the most touristed buildings and sites in the whole of Britain, and certainly a, a landmark in London. And yet, actually, we see just through the filters of Tudor history, by and large, the Thomas Mauls, mm. the Anne Berlins, um, and yet it is not something that has been richly detailed, at least not, at least not widely, as far as public history goes. Why is that? Yes, it is a bit of a mystery. Um, there was a time when the Tower did excite the sort of interest you're referring to. In fact, at the beginning of the 20th century, the turn of the century, there were, within a couple of years, there were two massive two-volume histories published within a very short time of each other. Um, there's been various picture books in this century, and one to mark the Tower Millennium in 78 by the excellent, in my view, very underrated popular historian Derek Wilson. Uh, but that was the last real effort at it. And I really thought a building that is a, a, our equivalent, if you like, of Versailles or the Colosseum or Brandenburg Arch or, or the Reichstag in Germany should have a history. And the more I looked at it, the more I saw that it was English history in microcosm because it was a building unlike the ones I've just mentioned, which had an absolute multiplicity of functions. Uh, it started off, of course, as a castle, then swiftly became a royal palace, then almost as swiftly a mint and a menagerie, almost at the same time in the reign of Henry III, and went on to become then a prison, the functions for which it's best known, and torture chamber and execution site. And finally, in its latest incarnation, of course, uh, it's a tourist trap. I haven't even mentioned its function as an observatory and a, and a treasure chest, treasure house to the nation. So what, what other building can possibly compete with it. And you're right, it's a mystery and I can't really answer why that is. Um, probably it's like Londoners have often said to me, oh, I, I've never been to the Tower or I haven't been there for years. It's so much in our face and so much under our noses that we probably take it too much for granted. Let's get um, to the origins. I want, I want to come back to the later period and quite, yeah. and quite sort of interrogate those pieces that we don't know about very much associated with the Tudors. Mm. But why there, and what was its original function? Well, its original function, it was it was built um, at the corner of the old Roman wall that encased Londinium, uh, running along the north bank of the Thames. And literally at the corner of the wall, there were still foundations of the Roman walls left when the Normans invaded, which is why, confusingly, some Elizabethans, maybe even Shakespeare himself, thought that it had actually been built by Julius Caesar, and, it, and, and another alternative name for it early on was the Caesar's Tower. Um, but that was the reason. It was to defend um, 
London from attack from the river, from the east, and build uh, what was at that time London's eastmost boundary. And it was essentially built uh, as a military fortress to overawe the newly conquered Saxon English by the Normans. And how, uh, how often was it employed as, uh, for its original military function? Uh, quite often. That's another function of the tower that is actually um, forgotten. It was besieged at various times. Um, in the reign of Stephen, when it was um, fought over by partisans of Stephen and Matilda, uh, in the reign of um, Henry III um, during the, the, the Barons' War, um, and um, then later on, even in Tudor times, Wyatt's um, troops reached the outer um, fortifications, as did the rebels following the Earl of Essex. So it has been fought over, and in the Wars of the Roses, it was also besieged. So about half a dozen times, it's actually been the scene of sieges. Now, one of the most interesting aspects of this book, I think, is the way it tells the modern history of the town. Because I think this is yeah. a wonderful retelling of the origins of it, it goes through a richly detailed period of the Tudor period that people are at least in some way familiar with. Mm. But really, in many ways, the most extraordinary stories related to the Tower are those of the modern age. Well, absolutely. And when you read the late Victorian books that I refer to published around about the turn of the century, about 1900-1898, they very much write as though the history of the Tower is in the past, that nothing more significant is going to happen. Had they gone um, in a time capsule and looked only 14 years ahead, um, the Tower once again... Uh, reverted to its 20th century function as um, a prison and execution site. And the last executions that actually took place there were of a, a dozen German spies in the First World War and a single spy, uh, Josef Jacobs, the last man to date executed there in World War II. He parachuted in with his spying paraphernalia, broke his ankle on landing in Cambridgeshire, was rounded up and ended up in the Tower. And also, of course, the noted um, Irish martyr, Sir Roger Casement, um, spent time in the Tower after he was arrested on landing during the time of the Easter Rising in 1916. Uh, there was a strange spy case between the wars. Um, um, an early German spy, an officer uh, called Bailey Stewart, known as the, to the press as the officer in the Tower because no one who knew who he was, um, who was in prison there, uh, not a stone's throw away from where tourists were flocking in and out. And indeed, the Cray brothers um, were imprisoned there in the 50s um, when they were doing national service, the very early 50s, late 40s, um, because they kept absconding from the army. And in the end, the army got fed up with them and chucked them out. But they were, they were the, uh, they actually got out of the guardhouse, so they're probably the last people to escape from the tower. There's a grim uh, poetic resonance, I suppose, about an Irish Catholic martyr like um, Casement <laughs> um, being held there, which, which refers back to, to, to the age which Indeed. we most associate with the Tower. Mm. But I think another thing that people don't understand about the Tower as modern is that it's still a functioning building. Um, we can see it as a chocolate box, part of Heritage London and part of the tourist circuit. Mm. Um, but actually, there's much more to it than that still. Well, yes, it's, it, it is. In fact, you mentioned, you said, you said it was one of Britain's. It is actually Britain's most popularly visited um, uh, tourist attraction. But it is still a military garrison. The military have a very real function in that they protect the crown jewels, the enormously important, both from a material point of view and from a sac sacral point of view, um, jewels that are used in, in, in the coronations. And that's been their function for very, very long time, way before Colonel Blood actually stole them. Um, they were melted down during the period of the Commonwealth, when such baubles didn't appeal to Cromwell, 
um, but were then restored in the reign of Charles II. So th there is a military um, garrison there under the present constable, uh, former head of the British Army, General Sir Richard Dannett, Lord Dannett as he now is. Um, and of course the other function um, is um, that it's still a royal palace, that it's still a functioning royal palace, it's still owned by the crown, administered by, uh, on behalf of the crown. Um, and so uh, it's still very much a community. It's got its own dentist, its own doctor, that sort of thing. It's, if you like, a village, a peaceful village within London, within the confines of London. So people still live there. And people still live And they're there. not just the humans, the beef eaters. No, it? indeed. There's a, there's a staff there. The constable has his um, apartment there, which was actually used for the interrogation of, of, of Guy Fawkes. Um, there are parts of the tower where you still cannot go, like um, Sir Thomas More's cell, the, the cell in the Bower Tower, where Sir Thomas More um, was held, is still remarkably, almost unchanged um, from the days when he was held there. Your, why is that? Your hair stands... Um, I think there's a feeling um, that we take tourists to the iconic places, to the Bloody Tower, to the White Tower, the keep where, where um, which was the original and earliest part of the tower. There, there are about 20 towers, so I, I just think there's a feeling we should funnel the tourists to the, the, the places they might have heard of and keep them out of the other places. So what kind of proportion is open to the public? And, and In terms of towers, about half the towers mm -hmm. can be, um, about, about 10 of them, I think, are, are open to the public. And that military and about connection um, still uh, works with Grace and Favour Apartments? Um, yes, um, mostly of the, of the Yeoman Warders, but also of the administrative staff of, of, of the tower, who are quite often um, military officers, um, not only is the constable, but his deputy is also a, a, a military officer. So it's a strange um, administration. It's actually administered. It's a dual administration from historic royal palaces, the Quango that administers Hampton Court and various other royal palaces, and the army, who also have a function there. And it's a sort of slightly uneasy um, dual command between those two. Well, I think the point is made very, very strongly that history continues at the Tower of London. And for those who wish to know the full thousand-year history, we do recommend Nigel Jones's Tower, an epic history of the Tower of London. It's published by Windmill, and it's History Today's book, Choice of July. Thank you, Nigel. Thank you, Paul. Next up, we have a brief interview with Anthony Hornyold. As a young man, Mr Hornyold was sent by Britain as a diplomat to Iraq, where he saw at first hand the events of July 14, 1958, when the young King Faisal was murdered and revolution unleashed. Here he recalls some of his impressions from that day. Were you frightened? I, I wasn't frightened because um, I was with Sam Fall and was a very experienced chap and the whole, um, the whole sort of scene seemed to me at the time exciting rather than frightening. I realised Sam had made a, a wise decision when about an hour later an Iraqi army officer in a jeep brought back to the house a member of our staff who, en route to the embassy, the same way, had been pulled out of his car and, and beaten. Gosh. He'd clearly been through a, a terrifying experience and needed a doctor, which in the situation it took a bit of time to find. Goodness. We spent the rest of the day listening to news reports, which included the news of the assassination of the Crown Prince and the escape of, of Nouriel Saïd, 
and um, when Sam went off to join the ambassador in the hotel the next morning, he left me with instructions to um, listen to every news report from the International Service of the BBC and to ring him um, with the contents. The reason for this was that the, um, uh, the embassy had been sacked by the mob and that our, our um, communications had been disrupted. We needed to know what was um, going Happening, on. Happening, yes, of course. Um, and I found this, um, I've always felt since then, a, a strong affection for the um, the World Service of the BBC with um, the signature tune, the, the Libolero. Oh, yes. Um, and followed by the the calm voices of the... <laughs> BBC announces. Uh, I had escaped the um, very harrowing time which a lot of staff who had managed to get into the embassy that morning experienced. The, the mob had ransacked the, the, the place and they had to take re refuge in the registry where they remained for a considerable time until soldiers escorted them to a lawn um, behind the embassy. Terrifying. Did, um, did, did things calm down in the next few days, or what was it like for the next few days? You, you, you couldn't go back to where you lived, or, or work, certainly not to your place of work? After, the first few days after the revolution, um, what happened for us was that the um, uh, since the embassy had been left in a state of chaos by the mob, the ambassador opened a temporary embassy in the Baghdad Hotel. And in view of the tense situation, he advised his married staff to stay at home with their families and called in the bachelors like myself to uh, constitute a skeleton s staff. And to live in the hotel, effectively. And he, he said we could live in the, the hotel to save us having to drive, uh, expose ourselves by driving a, a, across the city to and from home. Um, Who was the ambassador? The amb ambassador was Sir Michael, Sir Michael Wright. Oh, yes. And so you must have had close dealings with him after that, did you? We, we had... Um, there weren't all that many of us... Um, in the Baghdad Hotel, so we had um, um, dinner with the ambassador and his wife uh, every night. Um, he had lost uh, not only friends but also most of his possessions when the residence was burnt down and both he and his wife showed great courage. I can remember him telling us some jokes and anecdotes um, well, his wife kept up a steady, steady flow of conversation. Um, what a hard time that must have been. We, st we stayed after a, f a few days, and um, the tension began to um, to ease, and we were um, we were told we could go back to our to our homes. Sam Fall, whose wife was on leave 
very kindly invited me to stay with him rather than be on my own. Um, I had um, an enjoyable time at his house the rest of the time I was in, in Iraq. I remember his house had a flat roof and after dark I used to sit up there um, smoking and looking at the stars which were very bright and seemed very close. There was a, a nice mixture of noise from the, we were on the edge of the of Baghdad, a combination of distant traffic, the barking of pie dogs, um, neighbours' radios, and there was poor um, families in Sarifas laughing and everything seemed to harmonise well. Did it feel like the beginning of a new era for, for Iraq and, and for the British too? What was, what was the upshot as far as your stay as a British diplomat was concerned? I think uh, on the day of the revolution and the special relationship which Britain had with Iraq ended. And um, although we went on having um, giving them aid and development, it, 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 was, um, it was different after that. And it was quite clear that the um, Iraq would not wish to continue as a member of the um, of the Baghdad Pact, and now view herself as a non-aligned country. Um, although she didn't actually resign from the pact until the following March, one of the, there's an Arab saying that. Um, my enemy's enemy is my friend. And since the coup was to some extent anti-British, um, the new Iraqi government viewed the Russians as, as friends. And um, bizarrely, they opened an embassy in the floor below us in the Baghdad Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> Well, how did you? How did the, the two countries? We were very polite to each other, and I kept, we kept on getting, Father, I remember, uh, notes misdirected to each other, and the junior diplomats were having to sort of pop up and downstairs, re-delivering them. Upstairs, downstairs. Yeah. And you finally left when? I I left in. Um, have been in the, in the, I think it probably late late September or. Um, and moved to Ankara. I didn't. I went back to London uh, first, and then I I had to go to. I went to Beirut for a short time to stand in for someone who was ill, and then from Beirut I went to um, Ankara. I got there early in 1959. And that's another story. Yes. Anthony, that's really fantastic to hear. Thank you very much for sharing those uh, recollections with us. And that's it for this edition of the podcast. You can read Anthony Hornyold's piece on the Iraq Revolution in the July edition of History Today, which is out now. You can also get the magazine in our new tablet edition, which is available for the iPad, Android and Kindle Fire by visiting www.historytoday.com forward slash app. You can also listen to previous editions of the podcast 
and comment on anything you've heard today by visiting www.historytoday.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.